Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Father Joe Manich, a priest of the Diocese of Cleveland, Ohio, and his talk, Scripture 101, Bible Basics for Catholics, recorded at Come and See at Blessed Trinity Parish in Akron in January 2013. With part two of his presentation, Scripture 101, Bible Basics for Catholics, here is Father Joe Mamich. Now, there are other sects that develop over history that say, now I have the secret. This is what you need to know to get into heaven. You've heard these people before, right? But what do we believe? Jesus is the fullness of revelation. There's no more secrets after Jesus. Jesus was the ultimate live, love, serve. There he is. Adhere to Jesus. You got it. I always get these presentations, and I, I like these because I have to write these new, or I have to pull together some other things when I do these because I don't mind coming up with new stuff. So when we did this thing up at home, they're like, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, I don't care. Just tell me what you want me to do. You can talk about heaven, hell, and purgatory. Great. <laughs> All right, thanks. I'll talk about that. So um, in talking about that, you know, I got to be the one that kind of talks about, you know, what, what is the last judgment? What is our individual judgment like? like? Well, I got news for you. I'm not dead yet. I've not gone to heaven and come back, so I don't really know any of this firsthand. But I think, is you know, you do research and all this, really, what does it come down to? Did your life lead mostly towards Christ or mostly away from Christ? Yes, there are times when you kind of go either direction, but what was the predominant orientation of your life? To God or away from God? That becomes, I think, our marker on where are we going to get ourselves at the end of time? Because we all know we make mistakes, we all sin, but... Which, where have we ultimately tried to go, towards or away? There's basically seven historical periods of scripture for you, kind of showing where these things fall in like world history or scriptural history as far as, you know, where are the great empires at the time? Where are the great things going on? The creation, the early part, the early people of our faith, the desert wanderings, through the period of the judges, through the kings, through the exile in Babylon and coming back, all the way to the Roman period, kind of seeing how it ties into what we know both to be world history and our spiritual history. Second thing we talk about when we hold about Scripture is that it's free from errors, that it is accurate on matters of faith and morals, and it contains no errors in these realms. We do not, as Catholics, expect, nor do we hold the Bible to be 100% accurate on matters of history. It's not a historical book. We hold it to be true on matters of faith and morals. Perfect example. This is a homework assignment for you. Look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Genesis 1, human beings are created on the sixth day. Genesis 2, human beings are created first. Problem. Historically, it's a problem. For us, it's not. Morally speaking, or faith and morals, because if you take those stories and blend them together, what do you get? Human beings are a very specially created creation in the image and likeness of God, the only creature that God breathes life into. And you get that by taking those two stories together. And in both, they become the pinnacle of that creation, because in one, they are the greatest of creation because they're last, and the other, they're the first of creation because, the pinnacle because they were first. Historically, problem. Morally, faith-based, it's not. 
And that's what we talk. I mean, they're in, that's another one to get the Protestants going on. And then try to watch them dance around that one for a little bit because you're like, now, what, what is it? Now, what our tradition has showed us, especially um, over the years of getting into the Bible, especially as we move um, into, and this is what I'm going to talk about in the next segment here about needing to be interpreted, move from a literal fundamentalistic approach to historical critical method, we find out that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are two ancient Near Eastern creation stories that have been part and in, moved into our book of Genesis. Two different stories of creation, epics if you will, like the Odyssey and Elysius and all those things, put together to convey a truth. But again, written from two different perspectives, two different types of uh, beliefs. And so we realize in this fact that it's free from errors, it's free from errors because it is inspired by God to convey God's own life to us for our spiritual well-being, our spiritual growth, our edification, not to make us history scholars, not to make us social studies Nazis. I hate to use that word, but not to make us like, okay, this is the way it's got to be. No, to make us really aware of our spiritual lives. We know then, too, finally, Scripture needs to be interpreted and that's where we've also gone over a shift. We've gone from don't touch the Bible to, yeah, it's okay, to get in there and read it. Get in there and read it firsthand. See what it says. A couple of things I like to point out. We just had the Feast of the Epiphany. Nowhere in there does it talk about three kings. It talks about three gifts. It doesn't talk about three kings. So the story of the fourth wise men, quite possible. But there are three gifts. Nowhere does it say that Adam or Eve ate an apple. Fruit. Nowhere does it say Paul fell off a horse. It says he got knocked to the ground. But those are things that kind of get put in there that we think, oh, it's in there. Oh, it's not. <laughs> and they're good stories. It doesn't really change the meaning, but it makes you think, oh. So the fact it doesn't say there were three wise men mean there could be more. Yeah, could be less. Somebody could have carried two things. I mean, Rufus could have been the guy that missed the boat or the camel. I mean, so there's, there's all sorts of possibilities of what could have happened, why there were you know, only three gifts. But we move to an historical critical method, which makes us want to understand the things behind it, to figure out, you know, what really was going on? What were the stories? What's the history? What's the experiences of the people that are writing this? One of the, my most favorite quotes is from St. Jerome. St. Jerome is a premier scripture scholar of the early church, did a lot of scriptural translations. He said very clearly that ignorance of Christ, I'm sorry, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. Now that was like in the three, the four hundreds. And that kind of got lost. Ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. Well, we've kind of regained that in our tradition of get in the Bible, read it, try to understand what is being said. Try to understand what's being conveyed. And so a lot of this, and especially uh, this, is you understand your, and you interpret by understanding, helping to understand what was the setting. The traditional who, what, when, where, why. Those W, those five W's that we learned in school. What have scholars said about this? There's plenty of things out there. You know, these new American Bibles like she has, or the Catholic Study Bible, those Bibles out there are great because the Catholic Study Bible, the New American Bible, usually has an introduction in the front of each book. The Catholic Study Bible has a reading guide at the front for each of the books. Kind of just gives an overview and likes also oftentimes gives footnotes across the books so you can see how things connect. And there's a case where 
I remember our scripture crops used to say, read the footnotes. Get a Bible you can write in. I have a Bible I use in the summer. It's all written up in. Especially when things cross over because it's neat to see where things cross. In some unexpected places, you're like, oh, look at this. This is a cross to the Old Testament. The other thing is, oh, what's the literary style? When you're going from something that's a true story to a poem, what type of language? Those of you who live through Watergate know what Watergate is. People younger than I have no idea what that is. Your generation, I'll say it this way, know the idea of free love different than mine does. I mean, so those, those words mean things. So very quickly now, let's just look at the Bible as a whole in the Old Testament, the New Testament. Old Testament, four major divisions. The first five books called the Torah, the Law, the Pentateuch. Penta, five, the core books for the Jewish community. That was their law. They lived it, they breathed it, they, they knew it. The next segment, the historical books. Boring. Um, and that's what they are. They're history. The prophets. The prophets, people like Isaiah, Amos, Hosea. The prophets were people that really kind of laid the ground for, for people like John the Baptist in the New Testament. One thing I want to say, or a couple of things I want to say about prophets really quickly. They're not fortune tellers. They're not the great Zoltan that has that little ball that you know sees a crystal ball. But a prophet was somebody who stood in the midst of the world and looked around them and said, this is going really well over here, and this isn't going so well over here. Perhaps you should try to be a little bit more like these people. And that would be a little bit better. And they really kind of stood in the world and tried to offer a new direction, focus always on that belief that they were chosen by God, that the people of Israel were chosen by God in a very special relationship. Psalms and wisdom literature. That's the uh, fourth major division. If you look at the Psalms, there's 150 of them. One of the most beautiful things I like about the Psalms that was core to the Jewish people's prayer, our Savior would have prayed those himself, which is why he says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Psalm 22, that was one of their Psalms. So when we use a responsorial Psalm in Mass, we are quite possibly and more than likely using words that Jesus would have used in his own language when he was on this earth. It's not just a pretty David Haas song or something like that, but it's got a root in something that Jesus himself would have uttered. And that to me is always very powerful and striking to think, wow, I mean, you know, they would have, he would have known these things so much that this would have come out of him like that. And one thing I like about that, Psalm 20, this is interesting how this goes together. Um, one of my most favorite psalms is Psalm 24, which most people don't know anything about. 22 is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? 23 is, the Lord is my shepherd. Interesting that that comes right after, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? 24, who is the king of glory? Let him enter in. Open wide the gates of the king of glory. Interesting that you got those three right in a row like that. And the psalms as a whole are at the depths of human emotions, the ups and the downs. And that's why I always tell people, especially, well, I don't know where to start reading. Take the book of Psalms, find a psalm, read it. You'll find something for your day, I guarantee you. And then, of course, wisdom. I already kind of alluded to that in the Proverbs saying about don't eat yellow snow. Um, personal well-being. Be on the lookout for what's going on around you. And how can we make sense of the strange things in life by looking from what's going on? Very humanistic concerns. Those are the major divisions. What are the major themes of the Old Testament? There's three. Who was Israel and how did it emerge? How did these special people, the chosen people, emerge? Well, they were created by God. What is particular about their experience? 
how do they see themselves? And then if we're talking about the emergence of Israel, we also have to talk about who's God. Who is God for the people of Israel? He's certainly creator. I can sum up the Old Testament in three, 30 seconds. We were close to God. We messed it up. He brought us back. We messed it up. We're close. We messed it up. We're back. We're, I mean, that's it. I mean, you just look at it. It just goes up and down. The whole Testament is back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And, I mean, that's, and that's it. But what do we see? God is Savior because he's always calling back. God's the pro- God of the covenant. God's the God of promise. I'm never going to leave you. And God is relational because what do we hear in, in the Old Testament? What God is greater than ours that we could call upon him? I'm given a name. Who are you? I am who am. No other, no other God was given a name that was that personal that the people of time could call. And then lastly, in the Old Testament, who are humans? Promised and holy, yet at times sinful. And that's why they exist in a special relationship with God. That's why in the Old Testament there's lots of narrative stories about who was from who and what and what and all these things and genealogies, putting people together. Then we get to the New Testament. So the New Testament. There's two major actors in the New Testament, and I think we know these people, Jesus and St. Paul. You boil it down, Jesus and St. Paul. The first biggest actor, Jesus. The second, Paul. In the New Testament, just like the Old... Now, this is funny. I, I didn't realize this until today. Believe it or not, when I was finalizing these notes, the Old Testament has four major divisions. So does the New Testament. Strange. There's the Gospels. There's the segment of St. Paul's letters. There's the... Apo- uh, I always mess the word. Apocalyptic writing of the book of Revelation. And then there's the narrative story of the book of Acts. Four divisions, just like the Old Testament. Now, that could be because that's how I chose to divide them, but nonetheless, um, it's funny. Um, So the biggest actor is Jesus. The biggest actor's life is found in the four Gospels, the first part of the New Testament. You all know that. We all know that. But maybe you didn't. Well, that's the biggest stuff. Interesting enough about the Gospels, I love this. The Gospels were probably written backwards. They started with the end first. Because the thing that was first on their mind was Jesus' death. They're like, this is really odd. This, this person we hoped in and believed in was put to death, and now he's back and he's appearing again. So the Gospels were probably written backwards. So they started by writing, this is what happened here. But then do you remember what he used to tell us? Remember what he did? He did that and he helped that blind guy over there. And then he did that. Well, Jen, do you remember that star? So they actually probably wrote the Gospels backwards than when we have them now because they started with what was most recent in their mind and then put it together. Then, as I mentioned, the second major actor was St. Paul. And I think that's the important thing, too. When we, before I go to St. Paul, remember the Gospels began with the actual experiences of being with Jesus, experiencing Jesus, that oral storytelling again, which then began to be written and shared and passed. Then we have St. Paul. St. Paul, we know, was a big Jewish believer. One of the best. Better than all the rest. Kind of like Chevy, I think. And he was, he was, he was like the primo Jewish guy. So much so, he was taking great pride in persecution. And if you remember the day after Christmas, if you happen to read there, The Stoning of Stephen, 
And Paul, for his part, consented to his stoning. It's right there in that account. But then we know that after his conversion, when he did not get knocked to the ground, when he did not fall off the horse, but Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right there had an experience with the risen Christ on his way to Damascus and immediately changed his whole life to being one of the most prolific preachers of the gospel, traveling all around the Mediterranean Sea. And of course, writing in his own hand. See me, I write in the big letters. I love that part. If you read the St. Paul letters, you talk, I write in my own hand. Can't you tell? I write big letters. Because one of my professors used to talk all the time how he was a tent maker. And tent makers used to sew and probably had big hands from hitting himself with those needles all the time. So you can imagine this guy with... I have a buddy who's actually a cop who broke his knuckles in a fight. And he goes, you cannot believe how much pain it is right now to do anything because i got all these knuckles badged up. But you can imagine like St. Paul having some of that same thing going on trying to write these letters. And so it's you know, it like a kindergartner writing with those big crayons trying to convey. And so when we think about the New Testament, similar to the Old Testament, again, it's a collection of books. Ultimately, at its core, to tell who Jesus was, what did he do? What did he say? And what should your life look like because of him? The Gospels tell the story. St. Paul basically puts it in action. Because a lot of St. Paul saying, um, I came over there and I told you people that you should be doing this. And why aren't you doing that anymore? Because those Judaizers came behind me and told you to do this. Don't listen to them, you stupid Galatians. That's another funny one. Oh, stupid Galatians. Don't listen to them because remember what I taught you. I didn't teach you that. Remember what I taught you. So Paul, a lot of what Paul's writing is, Paul's the cleanup guy. And so, again, in the same way, we have a couple major themes in the New Testament. Those, of course, being, very simply, who is Jesus? And because of figuring out who Jesus is, we want to, we want to get people to come into contact with Jesus and the first believers. We want people then to see how the eyewitnesses had died for their faith. We want them to be able to say, secondly... What was the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection? Why was it not an empty death? Why was it not an empty resurrection? And lastly, how as Christians do we deal with problems in our community? Again, Paul the cleanup guy. One of the things I want to point out, especially about the book of Acts, and I talked to you, uh, I said there's a narrative component to it. The uh, book of Revelation is uh, apocalyptic literature. It talks about end times. It's very symbolic. But the one thing that's always very important to notice is how it ends. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. It doesn't end on a, oh, please don't spare us, O Lord. It ends with a plea, come Lord Jesus. Which is pretty upbeat when you think about some of the things that it's saying because it really ends with the idea that what's our final hope is in Jesus' second coming. Even in spite of all this nonsense, and a lot of that has to do with the symbolic stuff around Nero and the persecutions and the Roman Empire and all of that. Where is true Christian hope found? In the arrival again of Christ at the end of time. The reason the book of Acts is considered a narrative is it's considered a second volume to the book of Luke. If you look at those two books together, imagine Jerusalem as 
a hinge pivot point. This might be another homework assignment for Lent, to read Acts and Luke. Read Luke first, then read Acts. Everything Jesus does gets him to where? Jerusalem. Dies in Jerusalem, rises there, boom. In the book of Acts, everything that happens to Jesus, everything that happens to the church community, starts in Jerusalem and goes outward. So basically what happens to Jesus in getting to Jerusalem happens to the church community leaving Jerusalem in Acts. And the hinge point is what? Jesus' passion, death, and resurrection in Jerusalem. And so what we can take from that is Jesus' journey is to get us to Jerusalem. Our journey now as the living, breathing believers is to take the Jerusalem story to the world and to take it out. Interesting kind of thing there. I mentioned earlier for the Old Testament and the New Testament that people write with their own perspective. But it's called the four-source theory of gospel development. Yes, it's heady, but it answers the question, why is this in here, but it's not there? It's a flowchart. I'll explain it in a moment. Basically this. Mark was the first written gospel. Mark was a Christian writing to non-Christians. Mark being the first has material you can find in Matthew and Luke. So what we know is that Matthew and Luke had some access to the Gospel of Mark. In some form, there are stories that are directly copied in Matthew and Luke from Mark, verbatim, or expounded upon. And why they're expounded on, for example, Matthew was probably a Jewish Christian writing to both Jewish people and Christians. So what he wanted to do was to say, now remember, Mark was a Christian, but Matthew wanted to say, look, this Jesus appears and can appeal to both you Jewish people and you Christians. So in Matthew, in particular, there are 40 fulfillment statements from the Old Testament found in that gospel that he takes directly out of the Old Testament. And you will find things such as, as was written in the prophets, Jesus, blah, 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 boom. Ah, now I see what you're trying to do. Now, we look at Luke. Luke was probably a Greek person, which means he would not have been Jewish, writing to the idea of universality, that this Jesus can appeal to everyone, which is why Luke has the stinky, smelly shepherds. That's also why Luke is very big on going to non-Jewish people. That's why he also has a genealogy of non, no offense to the women in the room, the non-perfect women in that book. Because he's trying to say, listen, this Jesus is for everybody. This is a universal savior. That's why the glory is in there. It says the peace on people of goodwill. It doesn't say some or a few or it's everybody. Now, interestingly enough, as I mentioned, there are things you'll find for Mark and Matthew and Luke. But there's also things you will find only in Matthew and Luke which means it had to come from somewhere else, which is where this Q source comes in, which is a collection of sayings that actually means coel, but it doesn't really matter. But it's a collection of sayings that those two had together, that they used. And then lastly, um, you will see there's this M and an L source that are only in Mark, are only in Matthew or Luke, because there's some stuff that appears nowhere else except there in those books, which means they came from their own experience, their own community, their own perspective. 
Now, you'll notice there's one thing missing from all of this. There's four Gospels. Where's John? He's his own beast. John, John, John doesn't fit into this model at all. Because, primarily speaking, to put it in very simple terms, Matthew, Mark, and Luke build Jesus up from the ground and say, look at this Jesus who was human and divine. John basically says, look at this divine Jesus who is also human. That's why the Gospel of John begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and it goes on for 18 verses of back and forth, because it's basically a different, it's a different perspective on the whole Jesus story. Because in John, there's a lot more kind of glory of Jesus than humanity of Jesus. So he's kind of in his own thing. This happens with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I give you this because this kind of explains, and you can go into some of the Bibles and you will see, they will tell you where these segments come from. For example, I'll just give you a little example. Here's an example of um, the Luke source. Luke 9, 51 to 18, 14. That's nowhere else. That whole nine chapters. 9, 51 to 18, 14 is only from some other place. Matthew uh, 13, 45 and following. There's a good chunk there, like those couple of chapters are only 13, 14, 15 are only there from that area. You see the development, how it comes to be. So all of this being said about the Bible, it goes back to it's something that needs to be inspired, that we need to interpret. We need to believe that it's free from errors and faith and morals. We need to believe that it's conditioned over time, that it's a spiritual history, but that it is something that has been put together for our spiritual growth, our spiritual edification, that is also a product of our living, breathing tradition. That the whole of Revelation isn't just in Scripture. It isn't just in tradition. But it really is, as we wear a left and a right shoe, it's in both of these things. It's in both of these things that really helps to teach us, ultimately, through our praying, our reading, our understanding, and our discussion of God's revelation, Scripture and tradition, that it can teach us about ourselves, about how we're called to relate with one another, how we are called to be in a special relationship with God, and ultimately, what can we learn about God through what God has chosen to reveal through sacred revelation, through that scripture and our tradition. So hopefully, after all of this, you've realized just perhaps a couple little things more about scripture, but also continue to maybe, if nothing else, wet the whistle a little bit and say, okay, let me go back in and look at some of this a little bit more and find out perhaps what more there is to see that maybe I already knew or maybe I just want to take another look at it again. So thank you for your attention, and um, I'll turn it back to you for the break or whatever. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For a copy of this program on Compact Disc, call 330-966-2903 or send an email to orders at livingbreadradio.com and reference the program broadcast date. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.